Welcome to Rogue Bogues In Conversation series. A uh, very special guest we have, an, an international um, icon, I would say now, of at least the last year, Dr. Seem Malhotra. Welcome to Rogue Bogues. Andrew, it's great to be here. In a humble podcast. Uh, before we get started, a lot of people probably don't know who you are, but we have uh, somewhat met each other, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how- uh, You mentioned this. Yeah, so I, I, I think 2014- I went to see you in Oakland when you played for the Warriors um, uh, with my, you know, my my cousin, um, his family are just huge Warriors fans. So I remember actually seeing you play. And also I we sat with, um, I think your then girlfriend, your now wife, Jessica, yeah. through some common friends. So yeah, it's uh, it's amazing to be here. Very small world, very small world, especially <laughs> up on the Gold Coast now, for those that don't know and wouldn't be here otherwise. Just funny how the world well, connects us, but tell us about yourself. Tell us, tell me who you are first, because a lot of listeners that probably won't know who you are, yeah. uh, where you were born, school, work, family. Sure. Um, before we get into anything else, just a little bit of a background. I mean, I went on your Wikipedia and as soon as I read uh, controversial <laughs> yeah. before your name, I knew I was on the right track as a yeah. guest because I, I got that one in front of my name on most Wikipedia pages, most, yeah. most internet pages. So the controversial thing I had a little chuckle at, but yeah. fill us in on who you are. Yeah. So I uh, was born in Delhi in India, both my parents, I was Indian origin, both my parents were doctors and they moved to the UK in the late seventies. So I was like a year old. So I essentially grew up in, in Manchester, North of England. And uh, I went to school there. Um, I went to university in Scotland in Edinburgh. It's a well-known um, medical school. Really proud of that of that medical school. You know that grounded me. I think uh, in terms of what it means to be a good doctor. We can talk about that later. Um, and then I specialized in cardiology. Um, I always wanted to. I was fascinated with the heart and uh, realizing also that we hadn't really made significant inroads in curbing heart disease. So I had a personal interest in looking into that myself. And uh, over the years, certainly since I qualified in 2001, Andrew, I, on a personal level, working in the National Health Service in the UK, was becoming more and more concerned about patients coming in with diet-related disease. There was a obesity issue. There were more and more people on medications, and they didn't seem to be getting better uh, in terms of physical and mental health. And I could see, I looked to the future, and I thought, if this carries on as it is, and I probably came to that conclusion gradually up until about 2008, 2009 or so. And I predicted if we didn't sort this situation out, then our National Health Service, and this can be replicated potentially all around the world, would collapse. It wouldn't be able to cope with the stress on the system because of all these people that are sick. So I started my own investigation and campaign, first and foremost, looking into how we had got or whether we could do better in terms of understanding how heart disease develops and how we can manage it, prevent it, et cetera. And in that journey, I'd realized actually that, you know, the conventional wisdom that many people have, Andrew, that high cholesterol is like the biggest risk factor for heart disease and you should keep your cholesterol as low as possible. I realized that was fundamentally flawed and that financial interests had taken over, if you like, and exploited that fear of cholesterol, whether it's a food industry and the low fat foods and high carb, high refined carb, high sugar diets, or whether it's the overprescription of uh, that stage, certainly and to some degree still exists as uh, the fact that the one of the most lucrative drugs in the history of medicine are cholesterol-lowering statin drugs, and they had been overprescribed. So I, when I got sort of to grips with that, then I started writing about it. And, um, and that kind of got me, I think, elevated me a bit into the mainstream. In fact, the first article I wrote was in 2011, February 2011, if I remember correctly, in the Observer newspaper, which is part of the Guardian Group. And they put it as, as a front page commentary around the fact that I'm a cardiologist and I'm wondering why are we serving junk food to my cardiac patients after they've had a heart attack, right? <laughs> Valid so, concern. Well, absolutely. And at that stage as well, I just connected with Jamie Oliver, the, the chef who had done a lot of work on campaigning to improve school food for kids. So that's where things started for me. And then I just kept writing and, and then campaigning. I became an activist on this issue because I realized actually that the whole system, Andrew, and what, where we've got to now really is just the, the worst effects of it had been corrupted by very powerful commercial interests, whether it's the food industry or the pharmaceutical industry. And that was damaging population health, my patient's health, everybody's health. Um, and that's where we're at. 
Yeah, we'll start with the food pyramid, right? The food pyramid. Were you a food pyramid? Was that during your schooling as a young fellow? Absolutely. Because I was a food pyramid. And yeah. That's been what pretty much turned upside down for the most part now. Um, yeah. The, in Australia, I don't know if you had it over there. We had the heart tick. Right. Did you guys have that over there? We had there? something similar. So yeah. like on certain things that were good for your heart, and now we find out uh, some of them probably weren't that good. Some of them didn't make a difference. So do you think it was just lobbyist groups, big pharma? Where, where do you think that all that all was pushed from? Yeah, it kind of started probably in the 50s, 60s. Um, there was a, a big debate going on at that stage because it all actually interestingly comes back to heart disease because um, from 1920 onwards, there was an increase in heart disease that was happening throughout Western Europe, and particularly in the United States. It peaked around 1960, 1970. And scientists were at odds understanding what was causing it. And one of the most prominent scientists in that debate who won the debate, although with flawed science ultimately, was a, um, an American uh, scientist from the University of Minnesota called Ansel Keys. And he concluded through some of his studies, although they were not good quality studies through correlations that he felt that the primary driver of heart disease was people eating too much saturated fat and fat, and, but saturated fat in particular. So, you know, from foods like butter and cheese and all that kind of stuff, red meat. Um, and that actually changed policy in the U US um, in 1977, um, where that's where this kind of almost food pyramid or this low fat food movement started. Up until that point, actually, most people were of the belief for probably centuries that carbohydrates were fattening, right? Starch was fattening. And suddenly we go into this, oh, actually, we need to lower our fat consumption. And also, it, you know, that... Um, influenced policies, uh, food policies around the world in the UK, 1981. And of course, I'm sure it would have probably at a similar time affected Australia. Uh, and as a result, what happened was the food industry then started marketing and pushing out all of these food products that were marketed as healthy, lower, proven to lower cholesterol, low fat, et cetera, but replaced the fat with basically refined carbohydrates. So, uh, which processed, we know yeah. exactly processed carbs. And, um, there's a good school of thought. I'm part of that, pushing that narrative as well, is that it's that probably played a major role actually in the obesity epidemic because it was it was only in the late 70s and 80s when this all changed, where we start to see an increase in obesity. And the situation's so bad now, Andrew, if you look in the UK, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that figures in Australia are quite similar. 60% of adults now are overweight or obese. A third of kids by the time they finish, finish primary school, the age of 11, are overweight or obese. I've actually taken it further because um, diet-related disease even affects people who have so-called normal body mass index. So the figures are more likely that 80% of all adults in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, the US, have excess body fat that will pose a risk to their health. 80%. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely unbelievable. And you look at, uh, have you seen the photos that have been posted now, obviously a lot of people smoked back in the day, so it helped the metabolisms, but photos of from the sixties and seventies of people at the beach. Have you seen these photos? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. You can't spot anybody. It's like, yeah. Oh, it's like, bizarre. but just, just regular people are in shape because yeah. they were, look, they were more active with their work. Yeah. You know, it was very much more industrial back then. Um, warehouses, you were, you were hard labor with a lot of work, but you look at those photos and then you fast forward to what you said today, you're like, where have we gone wrong? And you got to point to processed food. I'm, I'm from a, my family's from Croatia, Croatian heritage. They were big on pure lard, like fat. Right. Everything they did was, was cooked in, in pure fat, but, but natural pure. They weren't, they weren't fat. They were, they were in good shape for the most part. Like, you know, your butters and all natural stuff. We look at it now and everything's so processed and so crazy. I watched a documentary many years ago, about five or six years ago, Sugar is the New Fat. And I watched this documentary and I was like, I'm just going to go on a sugar process, sugar kick. Some people know this story that followed me. And I couldn't believe the withdrawals I had for three or four days, man, like 4 PM crashed like it was midnight. And then I found a second burst of energy being off processed sugar. And now I kind of monitor how much processed sugar I have. And once you start reading labels, it's sugars in the most craziest stuff. You'd never think it is same as, same as carbs to an extent. And you're like, how, how is like it's in bread? Sugar's in bread, certain yeah. types of bread. And you're like, what is going on? So you can see to people that work nine till five or nine till seven, the kid drop off in the morning, come at night, don't have time to cook. They're not really reading exactly what's in things and they're just eating, eating, eating. And you can just slowly see 
yeah, and killing obese. I, I'm also curious as also to, from your, on your perspective, Andrew, as an athlete and someone that played in the NBA. So I've, you know, worked with, um, some very leading sports scientists around the world and have written some articles in British on sports medicine that caused a lot of controversy where I'd called out all of this stuff. Um, and, uh, one of the things I learned from, in fact, it was a, a friend of mine who was at one stage, a Liverpool football team doctor. And he was saying, I said, do they, did they pay much attention to the nutrition amongst the soccer players? And he said, not really, Asim. He says, I, to be honest, I think a lot of these guys after their training session were going off to McDonald's. So I'm just asking you as in terms of like in your experience when you were in the NBA, for example, was it just the conventional wisdom that everybody else was kind of, you know, um, adhering to, or was there a very strict understanding that what you eat does affect your performance as well? I think it's gotten better. Um, when I first got into the league, and the NBA is a different beast. When you look at the AFL and the NRL in Australia, they're very strict on, on what those boys eat. They're, they're very, very, they try to, you know, I think the AFL and the NRL at times over baby their athletes, like way too much. Right. The NBA was opposite. I got to the NBA, there's dudes eating cheeseburgers walking into practice. And I'll, but you got to understand there's so much calories burnt that it wouldn't yeah. really- At that stage, you don't see it. It wouldn't yeah. really overly affect them. Where you see it, these, these guys retire and have bad yeah. dietary habits. And you see yeah. a couple of these players, not going to name names, embarrassing. Yeah. Twice, three times the size well, of what they were. Well, well, I can say that because I'm a doctor and I say this because I also was involved and we get onto that. I was the guy that basically said that Boris Johnson, our prime minister, likely got admitted to hospital because of his weight. And in fact, they accepted, it became a big news story and they accepted that. And then he- You didn't Matt, get called a fat shamer? No, I didn't at all, actually. I was a little Surprising. bit worried about that, but I did it in a compassionate way. And then Matt, oh, and then Matt Hancock, the secretary of state, you know, contacted him. He asked me whether he, um, you know, uh, uh, what to do about the obesity epidemic and also its relation to COVID. But just an observation, and I see a lot, some soccer players, for example, again, I won't name them, but, you know, some former like England captain, for example, and you see, and I think what's happened is that they're used to, many of them are probably used to a very high carb diet when they're, when they're athletes and they're, again, probably, you know, sometimes doing physical activity and training, I suspect several hours a day. I don't know what, in mm -hmm. basketball, I suspect, you know, probably four to six hours a day. Sometimes you are probably doing high intensity yeah, training. Yeah, off, off season, in season, you're about an hour or two, but it's, we've got travel, planes, buses, automobiles, you're right. just constantly on the so, go. So you're, you know, you're burning a lot of calories very quickly. So you won't necessarily notice it at the time, but you see what happens when they stop playing. You can't sustain that, you know, for the rest of your life. And they suddenly start, you see them actually really pile on, especially the, the belly fat. And I've observed people and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just going to say the people I remember observing, I thought, but like, you know, people like Shaquille O'Neal, uh, even Michael Jordan, I think has also got a little bit of a gut now. So you think, ah, he can probably do something about that. If he probably cuts the carbs, it may be contrary to what he was used to, but actually as you get older, you become less, um, sensitive. Uh, in fact, you become more sensitive, sorry, to carbohydrates. The body becomes more insulin I'm resistant. A, I'm a proponent of that. Like I, I was a huge pasta guy. I loved Italian when I played. I had to eat pasta before games for my carbs. I've noticed upon retirement, I can only eat it maybe once or twice a week. Wow, right? I, I notice the differences. It just doesn't break down. I feel much more heavy. Gut doesn't process yeah. it as well. And you're, still, not, and you're still pretty young, man. You're like, what? 38, late, 39. 39. Yeah. 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 But I still, I still work out, but I can, I can notice it. I can notice the differences. 100%. If I eat pasta every day now, like I do my playing days, I, I can barely get out of bed. I, feel, I don't feel good. So I've gone to, you know, much more bare bones diets at times, a steak with some eggs, like, you know, really kind of um, bare from carbohydrates, maybe some veggies on the side, but definitely. But it's, it has changed, um, but you know our locker room, for instance, I'd, I'd see guys eating. This is what was amazing. Some guys were just, you know, a lot of uh, NBA players are born and raised in, in pretty poor areas, right? You know, yeah. areas where McDonald's is probably your best meal you're going to get that day or that night, right? So they're just trained and used to that. That I, I saw guys in the locker room eating, you know, a fried chicken burger and fries 40 minutes before tip, <laughs> and then they oh, go God. out and play well. Jeez. And I, I used to say to them, if, if I ate that, <laughs> I would need a nap. And I'd be done for the game. Like yeah. just stick a cork in me, I'm done. So a lot of it comes down to upbringing and then just being used to that and that yeah. mental fortitude. But on the flip side with obesity, you see it a lot, you know, like it's not so much just the health, but it's also your mental health too. It's self-confidence, it's body image, especially kids are brutal at a young age. It's There's so many factors. And I think yeah. as much as at least in Australia and the US to an extent, but Australia, our government always wants to do everything under the guise of we're doing this for your health they've kind of forgotten about obesity over the last couple of years with, with the pandemic and everything that's happened. And now you're seeing the numbers that you see even, even jump off the page at your more, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. I think the thing, the issue with, um, also with COVID is that, you know, I, early on, I think it was March, 2020, actually, I had started looking at the data quite quickly to figure out what was making people more vulnerable to COVID. And once you exclude the very elderly, 
it was the same risk factors for heart disease were basically the same risk factors for COVID infection and severity of COVID. Um, things like high blood pressure, uh, type two diabetes, all again linked to excess body fat. So for me quite quickly on, I thought, hold on a minute. I, because this is my area of research and I've been publishing on this for years and campaigning on it is that what's interesting and gives people some, I think, hope and motivation, certainly with my patients is that when you change your diet, Andrew, um, for most of these people that haven't been following a great diet, your risk factors for heart disease actually improve and even reverse, you know, get into even normal ranges just within a few weeks, mate, just right. within a few weeks. It's that powerful. So I thought, hold on, this is a great opportunity. We know that COVID is exploiting people who are overweight, et cetera, but these risk factors that are going to lead to increased risk of death could be improved quickly. So, you know, I went on Sky News um, and I'd, I'd written an article, I think at that point for the, for the Daily Express and and basically said that, you know, when we locked down in the UK, the the message that was repeated almost on a daily basis at the beginning and came from our prime minister was stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. I said, you know what we should add in there? Eat real food. This is a time because what happened was, and we know this now has been confirmed, it, we had a, a fast pandemic with COVID that exploited a slow pandemic of chronic disease. And this, the data we have when we look back is that 90% of the deaths, Andrew, from COVID globally happened in countries where more than half the population were overweight or obese. Mm. So that would include Australia, United Kingdom, uh, US, Brazil, all correlates with obesity. Yeah, it is crazy. We spoke offline, like whenever there was you know, a lockdown in Melbourne when I was there, I got caught in one, I would notice the fast food restaurant drive-throughs probably doing 5X the traffic they usually did. So- the premier of the state then would, would would announce a lockdown. I'll go get food, you know, go get some some chicken or stuff, or go to the supermarket and get some stuff. And and I was I noticed these things because I'm I'm a weirdo, but I noticed, man, that that KFC drive through usually has three or four cars. They're to the highway. You can't get in that. Yeah. So to your point, people were looking for convenience. They were scared to go to the convenience store. Melbourne actually or Victoria had a one hour exercise uh, rule. You could only exercise one hour a day outside of your home in f free fresh air. This is how crazy it went, but it was all under the guise of for your health, but yeah. all the policies were, were anti-health. And actually, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the, also, the fear created by lockdown, one, actually, we know fear is not good for mental health, but it's actually terrible for the immune system. So the irony is you're creating this fear, exaggerated fear. I don't mind with people being precise, but it was grossly exaggerated. And, um, and what that does is also, we know that a lot of people stress eat, right? So one of the root causes behind this whole is the way we live and the psychosocial stress that people are under. It encourages consumption of these, you know, convenience, palatable, addictive, tastes good, tastes good type of food. So it's just it, almost like the a, a perfect storm actually for ill health. Um, and again, just coming back, just give people, I'm a numbers guy. So I like to break down numbers, which I think is interesting for people. So early on in the pandemic, they, there was a study that came out in the UK looking at, depending on your socioeconomic status, um, whether you were sedentary, whether you were overweight, whether you consumed excess alcohol, whether you were a smoker, et cetera, what your risk of being hospitalized with COVID was. And this is in the ancestral strain, which is particularly bad, right? Not the one we've got now. And even then, if you were, uh, an obese sedentary, um, you know, uh, someone who consumed too much alcohol, et cetera, but specifically related to being sedentary and significantly overweight in terms of diet, your risk of being hospitalized with COVID was about one in 300, 350, which by the way, a lot of people might think, hold on a minute, because actually that's another discussion needs to be had is that um, the perception of COVID and the fear was so grossly exaggerated that at the beginning of the pandemic, even when we had data to contradict this, 50% of American adults thought their risk of being hospitalized with COVID was 50%, <laughs> one in two, when in fact it was less, way less than 1%, right? So one in 300, if you're in that kind of category of, of, of being not in the worst kind of state in terms of your health and socioeconomic status, whatever else, and all the stresses that go with that. Um, but if you were the opposite, Andrew, if you were basically normal BMI, you were active, um, you know, in a, in a, in a position where you had probably a stable income, et cetera, then your risk of being hospitalized was almost four to five times less. So about one in 1500. Mm -hmm. And that in itself tells you a lot. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, it's the, the guys of our health just always got me mentally when I was, when I was, I was a huge critic of lockdowns because I, I kind of, 
not, I'm not an expert and people would say shut up and dribble, but I could see the consequences of, of locking people in their homes, not letting them exercise, not, they closed gyms here in, in certain parts of Australia. Um, I had a friend of mine in Melbourne, his neighbor came out and said, you've done your one hour of exercise today. Why are you going outside again? You know, that's how crazy it got yeah. under the guise of health when, when that's not healthy anyway. But anyway, moving on, what, why are you in Australia? What's going on? Fill our listeners in with what's going on. Yeah, mate. So I, um, I've been on a bit of a world tour. And uh, I started this really um, September end of last end of last year. I published a paper in the Journal of Insulin Resistance, really a very extensive paper. It taken me quite a long time to get to that point where I concluded that the COVID vaccines likely should never have been well, certainly should have been should be paused and investigated because of the serious harm rate. But now, obviously, information has evolved since then. And in fact, I said it then. I said that. Um, you know, it likely should never have been approved for use in a single human in the first place. And I can explain that. So I just to be clear, you were actually a, you were pro-vaccine yeah, prior to that. I yeah, just want to make that clear. hundred so, percent. So I, you know, traditional vaccines, I am very much supportive of because when you look at all of the drugs that we prescribe, you know, of all pharmacological interventions, fact, traditional vaccines are amongst the safest. Serious adverse event rate from published data is about one in a million, right? So I had put vaccines personally in a special category. And because of that reason, I did not even think of the possibility, Andrew, that a vaccine could do any serious harm at all. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. It wasn't possible. So I took two doses of the Pfizer vaccine quite early on, January, 2021. And then in February, I went on Good Morning Britain to help tackle vaccine hesitancy. I wasn't involved in pushing or promoting, if you like, but basically asked me specifically to help discuss why were people from ethnic minority backgrounds in the UK more hesitant to taking the vaccine. And I said, actually, let's just try and have some understanding why. And I said, look at what pharmaceutical industry be doing for years, the fraud they've committed, right? Um, but I said, there are things that I think at the time I sort of thought were irrational concerns, depopulation agenda. I still agree with that. I think these, you know, these are not part of it, part of what happened. Depopulation agenda, microchips in the vaccine, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and but I that's, left- But that's what people usually do though, by the way, when you're, when you're questioning COVID or the vaccines, it's like, oh, you're, you're one of those people that thinks, you know- 5G and all that kind of thing. It's like, no, 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 you can have, you can have a separate conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about nuanced discussion. I try and look at things rationally. And I said, I think those are irrational. These are the rational concerns. And I left it at that. And at that time as well, Andrew, it's important to remember in the UK, we were only, the narrative at the beginning was we're only going to offer this to people at high risk and elderly. We weren't giving it to anybody else at that stage. So I was there to tackle that. Um, issue or to at least talk about it because I convinced a friend friend of mine who's a famous film director called uh, Gurinder Cheddar in the UK. She's done films like Bennett, like Beckham that you might have heard of. So that's what, how that all came about. Um, but then the situation evolved and the first thing that happened, although at the time it, it didn't click, but I was baffled is that my father, who was a, a gen- retired general practitioner, he was vice president of the British Medical Association. He suffered what was a very... Um, unexplained or unpredictable, unpredicted, unpredictable, uh, sudden cardiac death in July 26, 2021. And I, the post-mortem findings that, uh, that came about didn't make any sense to me. Um, he had two severe narrowings of th- in three of his coronary arteries. Um, and I knew his cardiac status inside out. It was a very fit guy. He was walking 10 to 15,000 steps during lockdown. And no cardiac issues prior to that? No, not at all. No, nothing. In fact, we'd actually done some cardiac tests on him a few years early and everything was pretty good. So for me, something had happened that had caused, because mild furring in people in the early seventies is quite common. Mild furring in the arteries, like it won't really cause an issue unless it's severely blocked or you get a heart attack or whatever. And, um, something that had clearly happened that had caused there to be a, a big acceleration clearly in him of those narrowings or blockages. Cause even furring in the arteries even starts in teenagers sometimes, right? And it can, most people have heart attacks after the age of 60. So it builds up over decades. Something had happened that caused a buildup very, very quickly. And I couldn't figure it out. And then at the end of 2021, research started to come out backed with other data, national data and whistleblower contacted me from a prestigious, you know, institution in the in UK, basically giving us, um, good enough, strong information to suggest that the mRNA vaccines could cause rapid acceleration of heart disease. And I thought as a cardiologist who understands this better than most people and have published on it, I thought, Jesus, if this is correct, and it appears to be, we are going to see a surge in heart attacks and excess cardiac deaths for the next few years. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. And so your father's kind of, may rest in peace and whatnot, that that stemmed you because I you got a bit of OCD in you with numbers, I see. Yes. That feel, which is fine, um, which you all do. 
that's what put you down this track to really start going yeah, gung ho, right? It did. It did to one degree, at one extent, because that what happened to my dad is a very specific harm of the vaccine. Although I think it's probably one of the most lethal. So it made me understand that issue, but it then made me look at all the other stuff. And then I spent months critically praising the data because I thought, okay, well, maybe my dad's thing is a rare thing. It's 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 a, a one-off. He's unlucky. But actually what I thought I'd do is let me look at the data in its totality and see what the risk-benefit analysis was. And, you know, there's only one piece of data, I think, that, you know, we can talk for a long time about all the other data and it's extensive, but there's only one piece of data for me, Andrew, and for most people should have been enough to completely suspend these vaccines across the world. And that was a reanalysis of Pfizer and Moderna's original trials, clinical trials that led to the rollouts of the vaccine approval and rollouts. And that was reanalyzed by some of the world's most eminent scientists. And what they found is at the beginning, and the new data became available, so they were able to analyze it a bit, bit better, is that from the very beginning, the vaccine was going to do you more harm than good. In other words, you're more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the vaccine, hospitalization, a disability, a life-changing event, than you were to be hospitalized with COVID. So it should never have been approved, in my view, for a single human in the first place. Forget about mandates or kids or whatever else. I mean, nobody, Andrew, in my view, should have ever- Not even the people that were pushing for high risk. You didn't no, say not you- really, no, because I'll tell you why. They determined from their reanalysis that the serious adverse event rate, and this is on what we call the highest quality level of evidence that you can have in medicine, in science, right, um, was one in 800. And we have suspended other vaccines historically for much less harm. So 1976, um, the swine flu vaccine was suspended because it was found to be causal in one in a hundred thousand people with a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, a debilitating neurological condition. Rotavirus vaccine was found to cause bowel obstruction in kids in one in 10,000 kids. This is at least one in 800. And we think it's probably closer to one in 300 with other data. So for me, it was a no brainer. Um, but to, but actually to answer that question, it's a good one around whether high, at the beginning, because people have asked me this, Asim, do you not think with the data we had at the beginning that the vaccine probably did more good than harm? Theoretically, yes, it may be true, but it becomes, and in, in, sorry, in people over 70 specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So So the question is, at the beginning, do you think the vaccine did more benefit than harm in people who are over 70 in the first few months of the rollout? And that may well be true. But it becomes irrelevant for two reasons. One, I've already said before, that if you have a serious adverse event rate that's, that, that, that's hot, that is that high, that normally wouldn't lead, lead to approval of any of vaccines anyway, because it's thought to be too high, because you're giving something to otherwise healthy people to prevent something happening, you're going to cause a lot of harm. The second issue is, if you tell patients, if I had, for example, a 75-year-old patient and I said to them, listen, the data I have at the moment is this vaccine is going to give you, say, a one in 500 chance of benefiting you, which by the way, in medicine is very, very poor efficacy for a drug. So it's going to give you a one in 500 chance for benefiting you. But there's a one in 800 chance in the short term, because this is only short-term data. It's probably much higher because over time there are other things that happen. What we know at the moment with a new vaccine and unknown long-term harms. Well, I can tell you the short-term harms are at least one in 800. I can tell you, Andrew, overwhelming majority of those patients would not take that vaccine. So that comes into the informed consent issue, which is something we should be, you know, which is part of ethical evidence-based medical practice. All of these things went out the window. Now, to be fair to doctors, we didn't have that data broken down in that way that was able to tell people the absolute benefits of the vaccines and the harms at the beginning, because we were told something that was a half-truth, because our regulators around the world, and it's again something most people don't know, take most of their money from pharma. And what that means is they can't be completely independent in terms of their assessments of these drugs. And that's a big problem. Your TGA in Australia takes 96% of its funding from pharma. That was published- 96%? Absolutely, mate. And that was published in the BMJ by actually one of the world's most brilliant investigative medical journalists who was Australian, his name is Marion DeMassey. So that was published in the BMJ. 65% of FDA's funding in America comes from pharma. 86% of our regulators' funding in the UK comes from pharma. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Yeah, then we've got APRA as well here in Australia. You've got, um, you know, how many doctors do you think are out there that, that that quite clearly know what's going on, knew it at an early stage, but were, you know, bullied into being quiet, scared for their jobs, you know, licenses were going to be taken. Look, you're in, you're in the country of where COVID was, you know, we have Christianity, we have Islamic people and we had COVID, you know, we have, we have all, all these different religions, Catholic, Protestant. Yeah, and you had COVID was was actually you could have almost ticked that as a religion in this country, right? Yeah. So much so, I'm not sure if you flip your TV on here. We're still at, um, advertising the 
the vaccine, um, the fifth, fourth and fifth boosters are still being advertised on TV yeah. today. It's extraordinary what happened here, mate. Um, we got angry and upset and I was evolved as a campaigner that helped overturn vaccine mandates for healthcare workers in the UK. And we did that successfully in the beginning of 2022. When I heard what happened here, I was just, I was shocked beyond belief. Um, and that's one of the reasons I came because AMPS, um, the Australian Medical Professional Society that have supported and, you know, uh, have, have asked me to come here and speak. Um, they're basically made up of healthcare workers who lost their jobs because they weren't vaccinated. Still haven't got them back. Neither. So I've got it back. And, you know, one of the, the president of the society is a, a very eminent cardiologist, Professor Chris Neal, Associate Professor Chris Neal, um, who's, uh, you know, specializes in heart failure. Brilliant mind, brilliant man. Um, but somebody who comes from a place of ethics and values and dug his heels in and said, I'm not going to have the vaccine, but now I'm going to help support and fight for my colleagues and the truth so that the Australian public and patients get a better deal and our profession gets a better deal. So um, I came for that purpose to, to go on a tour of Australia, speak to people, present the data, but also, you know, lucky enough to also go speak in the Australian parliament um, and speak to members of parliament, et cetera, to explain to them and present data on what's going on. And- By the uh, way, the fortunate few who had an exemption in Australia were the politicians. Yeah, that's just an FYI. Yeah, that I don't. That doesn't make any sense. How is that possible? <laughs> I mean, yeah, just just unbelievable, unbelievable. Double standards, mate. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, absolute nonsense. Well, there, whereas there's people that work for, you know, we have a franchise here called Jim's Mowing. You know, they mow your lawns. Do you, they had to have one, and they were it was just them and the lawnmower on on acres of grass. They had to they had to have one mandated <laughs> to work outside. You know, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So yeah, so I'm here basically to support them and um and trying to get a few you know uh, speaking to you get some alternative media out there, uh, do podcasts, do some, you know, lucky enough to have got some um, mainstream media, at least, at least, you know, reasonably good mainstream media hit. So, you know, I did an interview with Outsiders um, uh, a couple of Sundays ago and, uh, you know, certainly on Twitter that was up to, I think, 1.7 million views. The Canberra Weekly interviewed me and did a very positive article in terms of what I was saying. And that's obviously got a lot of attention. So these things help. It's just about, you know, ripple effect, um, disseminating the truthful or the greater truth as opposed to people being misled and coerced because of really financial-based medicine, not actually ethical evidence-based medical practice. The only beneficiaries, in my view, with all the mandates, and this was actually confirmed to me by someone I won't name at this point, I'm sure this individual will come out soon, uh, a very senior government minister during lockdowns, the only beneficiaries of these vaccine mandates, according to this person, and I agree with it, I was, I was already there, a big farmer. Mm -hmm. This is how bad the situation is, mate. So you think it was solely down to a big farmer push? Um, there's people. There's people that obviously fear governments, fearing backlash of you know if, if if citizens did pass away from COVID, that they didn't push the vax hard enough. Is it that big farmers infiltrated governments all around the world? We know they've infiltrated um, legacy media. There's no doubt about that. You've seen. You've seen the. You know the um, the interest to, to news shows about misinformation, and it's like. 50 different news services with the exact script. We've seen all those things. So do, do you think it's a mix? Do you think, or do you just strictly think we have to cast our eyes straight down the barrel of uh, Big Pharma? Yeah, I think it's mixture. I think the root of the problem before this was too much uncontrolled, unchecked, both visible and invisible power of these big corporations, such as Big Pharma, over politicians and policy, over academic institutions, over the media, controlling the narrative and people not even knowing about it, right? Um, so that was already there, but really, I think if one looks to the root of it, there was, I would say there was a cock up, uh, lack of rational, critical thinking when it came to COVID from the beginning, we, we, you know, even the lockdown issue now, we probably should have had more focused protection for the elderly. That was definitely part of it. So you start from this place of exaggerated fear, then everything else you do as a result of that is going to be flawed. And one of them was thinking or believing that, the way out of this pandemic was a vaccine, which essentially now we know was probably never going to do great good and was going to, uh, you know, uh, was going to cause more harm. And of course, those that situation got exploited by all these powerful vested interests because of our economic system, Andrew, right? Big tech, big pharma, big food. All the they ones all, that their stock, their, their, their share prices. Bill Gates. Bill Gates is heavily, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is heavily invested stocks in McDonald's 
Coca-Cola and pharmaceutical industry stocks well before the pandemic. So not a conspiracy the, theory? But, but it's just, no, it's, it's, well, exactly, it's not conspiracy theory. It's no, just, no, I'm just saying, yeah. people will label that as a conspiracy it's theory. It's, no, it's facts and it's structural failures, right? It's Copco, it's the way business is done. But what happens is this guy is now the second biggest funder to the WHO. So you wonder why, when we talk about, and I reflected back on this recently, I thought, bloody hell, in 2020, why was there not a big push from the governments about curbing people's junk food or saying, listen, guys, at least educate people and say, listen, we know there is a link here and you can improve your health quite quickly and you can take vitamin D and you're probably going to be in a better sh in better shape if you ever when you get covid that wasn't pushed and I suspect part of it was because of the pushback from these industries and even probably Bill Gates pulling the strings behind the scenes and he's he's made half a billion dollars from investments in covid vaccines and again he's the second biggest funder to the WHO so you know it I don't think when people understand all these facts and that's what I present certainly when I'm giving these lectures you know the penny drops and people think jesus you know, the, most of them didn't know this stuff, right? And this is how the corporations have been able to exert their power over the years is what they do is they keep this information hidden or latent from the mainstream. Um, and and what I describe and what I say is that the general population don't know what's happening. General population and doctors, actually, most doctors don't know what's happening. And they don't even know, Andrew, that they don't know. <laughs> it's very scary. Um, biggest fine in... What for, the, for big pharma was what ten percent of the profits they brought in that year? What was the number? It was some, yeah. something like that. It was yeah, it's a couple it's, of billion dollar fine. I mean, and they brought is, in eight billion from the drug. I mean, yeah, you know. I mean, between two thousand three two thousand sixteen, most of the top ten drug companies have paid a total of about thirty three billion dollars in fines for fraud, right? Manipulation of research results, hiding data on harms, illegal marketing of drugs, and almost all the cases. Andrew, the fines that they paid were minuscule in, in comparison to the profits that they made. So no incentive to change. And they just keep doing the it's same just, thing, just you know? Tax. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just the, the, there's a professor called Peter Gosher, um, very eminent professor, one of the founders of the, the prestigious Co Co um, Cochrane Collaboration. And he says, well, if crime pays, you commit more crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes total sense. And look, I'm, I'm in a position where my GP, um, I love him. He's out there to an extent. He's a mix of, of, Drugs, medications, but also natural. He's he's kind of got a good hybrid about himself where he'll be like, hey, for your, for your gut, if you're experiencing this, I'm not just going to put you in a prescription, try this first, or a mix of both and utilizing him. They're very rare. I speak to a lot of people. Find, find a doctor like that that's not gung-ho on just like, what's wrong? Script, drugs, see you later. You know, and and those it seems like those doctors are a dime a dozen these days. I mean, that's, that's, that's really concerning. And I, I urge people listening to this, if, if you've got a doctor like that, find another doctor that's that's not just one laneway. I mean, I don't know how you view that, but I think you got to, like you said, you, with diets and obesity, it's we're, we're, in a, we're in a time in uh, of the world where it's give me something that's a quick fix in a medication. Well, sometimes you got to have that hard conversation with your patient and say, you know what, you need to, you need to get on a treadmill a little bit. You need to put the burger down or you need to, work out more or, or do this or your dietary habits, your sleep habits, which we now know are huge. You know, what, what are you doing for your mental health? Um, all that kind of stuff. But it's just gone so gung-ho on, on that with, with with the big pharma stuff that you you end up in a pretty scary place at times. You, you start to question everything. Sometimes you start questioning things that are the right medications for you because you're like, no, no, no. you need this. And that's yeah. I think that's then a dangerous place. And then that's where we see people go down that rabbit hole of 5G and – and, you know, this is a depopulation attempt and all that. Buy a weapon. I, I can, but I can see how people get there, right? I don't yeah. agree with what yeah. some, of the, some of those people are saying because I don't think it helps the course to group yeah. them all in. But I can understand. And some, and some of the thing is some of these things that start off as so-called, in quotes, conspiracy theories turn out to be true. Yeah, exactly. Like stop, right? Like the, the vaccine so, stops the spread, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's a conspiracy or, or, theory. Or even it was thought of conspiracy theory when people started saying this came out of a lab and it didn't come from a wet market. And we know now, in fact, I met... Um, it was a privilege actually to meet Nick Petrovsky, who's a, an immunologist and endocrinologist, Australian guy um, in uh, Adelaide. And he was the first guy in the world, Andrew, that came out and actually was able to figure out and decipher that the COVID-19 virus was not, it had it, been manipulated by humans. So it'd come out of a lab essentially, right? And uh, when one looks at that story, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It was a joint American-Chinese lab. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and there is evidence certainly to suggest that some of the most prominent, without naming them, um, doctors involved in the COVID pandemic response knew about it 
and covered covered it up. So I can understand where people come from when it, you know, it, but I always think let's go with the most rational explanation first. 100%. Right? It doesn't mean those things can't, you know, we, I think we have to have these conversations because the problem is as well, I'm also for, you know, open free speech. And even if we have people who have some very strange, crazy views that we think are crazy that disagree with us, let them air it. Let's have, you know, true wisdom comes from dialogue. You can't get to a greater truth unless you his, listen to all perspectives. And as soon as we start suppressing speech in one particular area, I think it's a, a recipe where ultimately that will come back to bite us. Yeah, you know? and for incels form, you know, extremists form a little group. Absolutely. So, so if, I, if I take away your voice for saying, I want you to say something stupid publicly yeah. and I want to go back at you, right? We have that conversation. Then you might feel like, oh, maybe what I said was stupid. You batter down a little bit. Yeah. You, you go home and you think, oh, maybe I was wrong. If I just say you can't say that publicly, you're going to find five other like-minded people, 10, 15, 20, form your little telegram chat or chat. And then we see extremism at a, you know, say it's at a rise and, and all that kind of stuff. You can see how it happens. I want, that's where I agree with, with Joe Rogan's take on this kind of stuff is you want dumb ideas aired. You want to have that conversation. We have a huge problem in Australia. The reason why I'm kind of doing this podcast right now is the plan for me is to have more people in different walks of life having long-form conversations. That's taboo in Australia. We're very legacy media here, even more than, way more than the US. The US at least is somewhat balanced with, 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 with these kind of forums. In Australia, we don't have them. We, we don't have these discussions. I, I was asking from day one of, 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 of all the lockdowns, can we have some you know, politicians, get, get some pol- a couple of politicians that are implementing these policies, give me a, a pro-lockdown doctor and an anti-lockdown doctor, give me an hour on TV. Let me have, let me hear both sides of exactly. things without making a decision. Let me hear that. Oh no, no, we can't do that. Why not? That, that's, I think, very important for people to make their own minds up. Whereas in Australia, it's like two minute grab on news, two minute grab on the radio, do this, do that. And you're just like, I, I just don't understand it. And that's the reason why I'm, I'm doing this podcast and trying to have longer conversations. I know there's many in the US, there's some in England, but in Australia, there's just none of those conversations. I think it's very, very sad. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and we're seeing the response in Australia as a result of it. I mean, you've also got now, unfortunately, because of these misplaced policies, um, you've got, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you've got a 15 to 70% increase in excess deaths, which again are so-called unexplained. Um, I understand the West of Western Australia where there was almost no COVID, you know, and almost everyone was vaxxed. You've got excess deaths going on there. I mean, come on, guys, wake up. It's pretty bloody obvious what's going on. You know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that that is playing a role. And you can't be discussed. I, I mean, we know that, you know, it's easier to, to fool someone than tell them that they've been fooled, right? The old adage. But I mean, how do we, how do we get to this point? How, do you think there'll be a mass correction with this moving forward in the next couple of years? Are you confident that, that governments around the world and people will now kind of shake that tree enough to say, we, we can't have this happen again? Because there's going to be another pandemic. Let's be honest, whether it's now, 10 years, you know, something's going, something else is going to come up in the future. Are we at a point where government officials – even your local GPs, doctors are going to, you know, go and drink from the fountain straight away, or they're going to say, hang on a second, let's, let's learn from, from our last mistake. Well, it has to be the latter, I think, Andrew, because if we don't, I think we're heading towards a It has to be, but, it, but do you think it will be? It will. It will be. I think, I believe humanity will win out. I think people are, we've got this, I think there's a shift happening. Certainly there's a greater awareness that people were misled and they were misled for nefarious reasons. And they don't want this to happen again. And I think there is a bit of disconnect with the establishment and the public around a lot of these issues in the sense that maybe the establishment think they just carry on down the same trajectory and the public are going to comply with another lockdown if it happens or with mandates and it may, it won't happen again. People are just, and I think people will get, and, my, and we have to do it peacefully, but my worry is unless we do it peacefully and through conversations and through dialogue with people with opposing views, uh, my biggest concern is it could get violent and it could be anarchy and we have to do everything to stop that happening. I 100% agree. I think the pendulum swinging um, is, is a dangerous thing. You know, whether one side on politics, whenever it swings violently to the other or, you know, health matters, lockdown, whenever it swings the other way, that's when danger is formed and, and people are being pushed into that corner. You know, there's people that, that lost, like you said, healthcare workers that still cannot go back and work. Uh, everything's over. You know, I always got to chuckle at, um, you know, the green pass in Australia, the, the, you know, you've had your two shots, so you can go and have a coffee at your local cafe, right? And then and they told us that, you know, after three to six months, you should get your booster because it, it, it's not protecting you anymore. But if you'd had your two shots 18 months ago, you could still get into that cafe. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, logically, I'm not the brightest guy, I'm an athlete, whatever, right? It's like, how can people not do the math here? Like they're telling yeah. you to get the booster because the first two didn't work. 
but you're still allowed in the cafe and your neighbor that didn't get the vaccine isn't 18 months on. Like it just made no sense to me. And I think those discussions just weren't had here. And our government went to the tact of labeling people. They labeled people that were skeptical about the vaccine with cookers. They called them cookers. So, so meth heads cook ice uh, cookers. Uh, that's where it comes from. I'm, yeah, well, you, I'm, you, I'm getting late. I was like, well, why am I calling me a cooker? What's yeah, the, I, do like, I do like cooking, but I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You're getting cookers. That's where it comes from, <laughs> slang. Um, but the government was actually labeling these people and pushing that. There was a, there was a, the premier or I'm not sure. I don't think it's called premier in Northern Territory. He's, he's, he ran the territory up in Northern Territory. He said, if you're against mandates, you're an anti-vaxxer. Even if you've had, he, he was quoted saying, even if you've had, and you're up to date with all of your vaccines, if you're against the mandates, you're an anti-vaxxer. And Mate, Andrew, this is that's insane. Let's be under, I'm not, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is all from the corporate playbook of Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. They deliberately, you know, were influencing this almost psychological operation to make those people feel like they were crazy or mad and to turn people against them. And it was deliberate, purely to get compliance up and to get people taking the vaccine. Be under no illusion. This is where it came from. Yeah, it's very scary. I mean, we, we saw it most, most, most people listening to this um, saw it firsthand in Australia. It was a very sad time, you know, for neighbors and friends. And I know, I know numerous, I've still got a friend that can't go see his uh, elderly grandparents with other family members at the same time because half the family's vaxxed and half isn't. This is two years on from when they got their vaxxes, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> All the data says they don't protect you anymore. They won't go see the elderly at the same time. That, that's how bad it's gone where people are just – you know, and that that stems into mental health crisis, perhaps, or other issues in society. People not talking to brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles. People getting divorced over it. People getting divorced and then having children. One, you know, if the husband wants to vaccinate the children, the, the wife doesn't, or vice versa. It was a pretty trying time. But some numbers today. I don't know if you saw the report out of the Guardian, uh, the medical watchdog over there in the UK, accused of uh, playing with the uh, the numbers of the COVID vaccine toll over there. Did you see that? T- that just came that's out today. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. I missed that one. I mm-hmm. did see it was picked up a few days ago in the Daily Mail, but is it in The Guardian as well? Oh, maybe it was a Daily Mail. Oh, I'll okay. be wrong. Yeah, yeah Mail Online. Two, yeah. two prominent Oxford University researchers. Yes, I saw that then. And I know actually one of them very well, Carl Hennigan. He's a good guy. So yeah, I mean, I think things are shifting. I think the the media are finding maybe more opportunities to try and get that truthful narrative out. I, through my activism, and I'm somebody that, you know, you know, who, um, understands the importance of, of, of connections and networks and having good relationships with people, uh, certainly in the media. And I've got a lot of friends there across BBC or ITV or different newspapers and having conversations with them. A lot of them, certainly, I think there was an element of willful blindness with some of them. They didn't really want to talk about it. Some of them are awake and wanted to get those stories in, but couldn't get them past their editor. After I published my paper in, 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 um, uh, in September last year, I had three interviews, one with the Daily Mail, one with the Times and one with BBC, Radio Scotland. And it's never happened to me in my career. So proper full interviews where I'm giving the whole, breaking the data down, rebutting some of the, you know, concerns or whatever. And uh, they never, ne- they never went to air. They never were, were never published. And then I had an opportunity, which I think got, you know, a lot of attention because um, I was asked to go on the BBC in January to talk about statin drugs and prescription of statin drugs. And I use it as an opportunity actually to talk about the big picture and the elephant in the room about excess deaths. And it went viral and it's something like whatever, 24, over 24 million views. And people have blogged saying it may get as many views as a queen's funeral, which is great because we're getting something out to the mainstream. And plus it tells you that there's interest. There's a lot of interest from the public in this particular area. So I think we're making progress, mate. Um, and uh, we just have to keep pushing. 100%. And, and just finally, how do, you, how do you go from, so if, if you do some research on you, very reputable, you know, highly <laughs> renowned doctor in the community, you know, big, big over there in the UK to, to now controversial being labeled with all these names. How's that affected oh. you and your family? You know, how are you handling that? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, you know, I think the, the, the most amusing from my perspective, or well, some of my friends were quite upset about it is, um, I was labeled by the times newspaper as being the leader of a, a wait for it, a grooming gang of anti-vaxxers. I groomed <laughs> a conservative MP, Andrew Bridgen. I mean, with a photograph of me and him on that, in that headline. Um, to be honest, mate, I, I, listen, I'm inspired by many people throughout my life. Um, and, uh, you know, one of those inspirations was Mahatma Gandhi. And he says, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. 
So when you're getting the backlash, for me, that's a sign of progress. You've got to have, but you've got to have a thick skin. It's not easy. I know most people, a lot of people can't do that. You know, I'm sure you know that in your world, also basketball and all that kind of stuff that um, I know, because I know a lot of celebrity figures and they get very upset with something that's considered negative press, but often, you know, it's because you're over the target and you've ruffled a few feathers and uh, it'll pass. So I'm not too fussed about that. I'm more, I'm obsessed with the truth, getting out there, looking after my patients, protecting them. And I'm willing to, you know, there's going to be a few arrows coming my way and so be it. Yeah, but it just amazes me, you know, how when you were with the narrative and everything was, you know, cozy with the, the mainstream media narrative about certain issues they wanted you on for the show, reputable, highly renowned, highly regarded. You've gone against the narrative for a bit and all of a sudden it's controversial and all these names. Um, I mean, I'm the same. I, I, I speak out on a lot of different issues and, and I'll be honest, I've been wrong about things. I've been right about things. I'm, I'm okay to say, you know what? I've, I've read more about this and yeah. I've said, I, I screwed up on this. Like yeah. I made a mistake on this. Cool. Like, that's life, mate. Exactly. Inf information changes. We 100%. should be open to change, you know? Exactly. We're not the same person as we not. were yesterday. And I think that's where we're at in society where it's it's grouping. I'm in this group, so i got to believe all this. And I'm in this group. Even with politics, you go left and right. And I'm like, I have causes on the left that I like and I hate and causes on the right that I like and I hate. And I think that's where most people should be. Absolutely. Um, you never want to be on the fringes um, and turn to, to, to being extreme. But I, I like that. The, the quote from Gandhi, I mean, it rings true. And I think- the more we can spread this out, the more people that can come and see you or hear your message um, is important. Where, where else can they find you? Where yeah, mate. So um, just in terms of uh, what's left in Australia, there's a big event actually happening this Saturday in Perth. Um, I've called it, um, putting a video out soon. Uh, you know, I think it's probably one of the most important health events of the year in relation to um, censorship and medical corruption. So speaking in Perth and Naomi Wolf is, uh, you know, uh, she's got access to the Pfizer documents and she's going to talk about that. And she's been a quite prolific activist in this area, Edward Dowd and, um, Julian Assange's father, John Shipton. I'm really interested and looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. So we've got this 2,500 seater kind of stadium where we're going to be giving this event and it's going to be live streamed. So that's coming up soon, but moving forward, um, yeah, I, I'm on Twitter as Dr. Asim Alhotra. I'm on Instagram, lifestyle medicine doctor. Um, uh, so people can look at that. Uh, I'm also now also in the process of, um, co-producing a, a documentary film. I did one a few years ago, which had quite a lot of impact in the UK. Interestingly, it was at that time featured in New York times. It's called the big fat fix and all the stuff around how we got it wrong about cholesterol and saturated fat. Um, and it premiered in the British Parliament. So we're trying to do something similar again. You could just I, use the same same dialogue from that yeah, documentary to the could, to the next one, right? Could, could well do, mate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um and then and then Joe obviously as well, and I you know kindly said that he's gonna promote it when it comes out. So hopefully we'll have a big impact. But we're gonna film that in summer with crowdfund. It's called First Do No Farm, as in P H A R M. First Do No Farm. And people can look at the website nofarmfilm.com and have a look and we're gonna crowdfund and trying to get money to make something really strong, get it out early now, uh, next year. That's great. Just make sure you get into WA. They were probably up there with one of the worst in, in Australia as well. The Premier has resigned there, so just make sure you get in there all okay. Yeah. They were the hardest right. with their border <laughs> lockdowns and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So we wish you all the best. We appreciate you joining our, our humble little podcast. Um, I think story sensational. We need more people like you, right or wrong, speaking out, giving their views, their opinions, and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Dr. Asim Mahotra. Thank you, Andrew.